0: This morning's reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 39. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay.
1: Thank you, uh, and uh, let me add my welcome. My name's Matt, uh, Matt Fuller, if we've not met. uh, Please do come and say uh, hi afterwards. lovely to uh, meet you. I know we have uh, a few guests uh, with us this morning. And uh, Acts 2 is a very long passage. Uh, It really is meant to be read together and and handled together, but I'm not competent enough to take you through it uh, in one sermon. We're actually going to spend three sermons, not all now, Um, but uh, uh, just for the regular church family. And, um, eccentrically, I'm going to take the middle section today, t- uh, verses 22 to 39, because I really want to look at the first half at the annual lunch, which is next Sunday. Let me lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll begin together. Our great God and Father, in the time we have to look now at one of the most momentous days in history, help us, we pray. We pray you'd help us to understand. Your spirit would once again be at work amongst us so we understand somewhat of the events of that day. Above all else, we understand who this Jesus is and respond to him rightly for our good and your glory, we pray it. Amen. Now, uh, these days, of course, if you want to know how important you are, the, uh, the one obvious way you, you determine that or assess that is you Google it. Uh, And so can I say, uh, you may not believe me, but for the first time ever this week, I actually Googled my own name to to discover how important I was. And uh, it was, as most of you would expect, not very important. Um, Number one, if you you Google Matt Fuller, number one is a a journalist, TV journalist in the States, based in Washington. Uh, Number two is the electric guitar player with the band, let me get it right, Puddle of Mud. You've all heard of them. (laughs) Yep. That's how important Matt Fuller is. And uh, number three was uh, a very well-built Aussie rugby league player. And if you mistake me for him, I'd actually be very flattered. Uh, Indeed. Uh, And then page two, page three, page four, and somewhere I might be there. That's what you do. You determine how important you are because you you Google it. Um, In their honour, I thought I might Google an Armistead child. I Googled uh, Poppy Armistead. Have her parents developed a wonderful uh, media profile for her. But you Google Poppy Armistead and you get... uh, well, her namesake, at least. Uh, pages one, two, three, four, five. All the images are of uh, Lizzie Armistead, uh, Olympic medalist. Uh, I thought her father might do a little bit better. Um, he tells me he's quite important in his office. <laughs> um, so I just went to Google Images, and if you put in Charlie Armistead, number one is this one. Which I was surprised at, because that's not on Charlie's LinkedIn page, actually. Um, This actually is uh, Elizabeth Armistead, who was the mistress to George IV, uh, and an illustrious member of the family, perhaps, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, And on and on you can go, but if you Google her, or if you want to know who the most important figure of history is according to the internet, well, it's Jesus, and he's a complete outlier. So a few years came ago, this, a couple of years ago, this book came out. Uh, who's bigger? Where historical figures really rank? Stephen Skiner, Charles Ward, they're sort of boffins with enormous brains who work in computer programming. Uh, one works for Google, one's a PhD professor at Harvard. And uh, they said, okay, let's work out who's the most important person of history. So uh, let's construct some very complicated algorithm that you and I would pretend to understand. And, but essentially, to simplify it, Let's took, take every reference in the internet that comes from a published work. So you could type in Kim Kardashian a thousand times. That doesn't count because it's got to be a published book that appears on the internet. Uh, and you go through all the references. And who's the most important figures of history? And um, they sort of do a little rearranging just for, for if, if the, the further in the past you are, you get a slight little boost. Uh, but essentially, they're very competent, and uh, everyone who knows what they're talking about says, yes, what they've done is constructed a very sensible list. And uh, the list is quite fun. The best, the highest Englishman, number four, is William Shakespeare. you would probably maybe have guessed of that. Um, who else might be interested? Highest American, Abraham Lincoln, number five. Um, who else might be interested? Uh, highest Frenchman, Napoleon, number two. Um, <laughs> Uh, but number one by country mile is Jesus Christ. And they say the most the stunning thing is not who the top five or the top ten are, but that he is in a completely different league in his own. So apparently, so they say, one in every 10,000 published words is Jesus. That is an extraordinary number. But they're saying such is the significance or the influence of this man upon world history that he's in a class of his own. There is just no denying it. See, he's the most important man in the whole of history. Fact, uh, you might say. Well, you might have guessed something along that. You might have even put him in your own top 10, no matter what you make of it, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. But it's not just that he's had an influence on world history. The, The central claim, and it comes right at the end of Peter's talk that we had read to us, Peter's sermon, I guess where he's going in all of this, even if you miss all the details, is verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord, the rule of the universe, and Messiah, the promised saviour of the Old Testament that everyone needs. He's those two things. And you have to make up your mind what you think of him. Now, if you are joining us today, we're in the book of Acts, and uh, we've uh, started uh, a few weeks ago, and um, right at the beginning, Lucas told us why he's written this book, the book of Acts. It's so that people may have certainty uh, about the truth of the Christian faith, certain of the, the events are true, uh, certain of the content, what defines Christianity, certain of its goodness, if you will, for the world, that it makes a, a very positive difference. But here in chapter two, chapter two is the record of the events of the day of Pentecost, a non-repeatable, unique, sorry, tautology, event in world history where Jesus Christ, who's died, who's risen, pours out his spirit. God, his Father, Son, Spirit, pours out his spirit upon his people in an unprecedented way so that now he lives with them, lives within them in a permanent sense, which had never happened before, It's a unique day in history. There's all sorts of things we need to think about, and we'll think about that next time. But in one sense, the the main purpose or point of this day, you see it in these extraordinary scenes, 120 or so followers uh, that were of Jesus, they begin speaking in multiple languages. So Egyptians, Turks, Iranians start hearing these uneducated fishermen and others speak their own tongues fluently. And the main point is... That all Christians are now equipped to speak boldly of Jesus Christ. And that's what you see Peter doing in uh, this sermon, particularly from verse 22 onwards. People thought it was so extraordinary. Well, what's going on here? Um, where are we? Uh, verse 13. It's people are drunk. They've had too much wine. Peter says, "No, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Mayfair on a Friday, eleven o'clock. Maybe you get. A, you know, they finish quite early. The the weekend's quite short here amongst the hedge funds. Certainly, just round the corner. Eleven o'clock, you might be teasing. but nine o'clock. No, they're not drunk. Something extraordinary has happened here. It is." The fact that God has poured out his spirit, as had been predicted by the prophet Joel 500 years earlier in 500 BC. And Peter says, here's what you need to know. Verse 22. Here's what you need to know. Listen to this. Oh, stop up your wittering and listen, fellow Israelites, he says to them. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God, by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Look, you know most of this, he says to the crowd there. The events of Jesus' life, you were there, you witnessed them. His death, many of you would have seen that seven weeks earlier. Oh, and he's raised again. We'll come back to that. But you know these events, he says. You know that much. And can I just remind or, or tell you, if you never quite clocked it, the events, the main contours, not maybe all the details, but the events of Jesus' life and his death, you will not find a professional historian on this planet who denies them. That's why he qualifies as a man of history for the book. These events took place. No one denies the main events of Jesus' life or his death, crucified at the hands of Romans. No one denies that. So Peter can say to his audience, look, you, you know all that, but what about the resurrection? Look, two main points Peter has, look, and there's an implication, so we're going to run through it like this. Who's this Jesus? He's the predicted Messiah, he's the exalted Lord, and therefore he makes a shocking offer. Okay, that's how we'll go through it. He's the predicted Messiah, he's the exalted Lord, and he makes a shocking offer. So let's go at it. Uh, pick it up, verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, at that point, I'm, I'm sure it was natural for the crowd and perhaps for us to say, Oh, great, he's risen from the dead, as you do. What sort of story is that? what sort of craziness are you making up? And here's Peter's response in verse 25. Essentially, he says, you should know this because the Old Testament predicted it. For a Jewish audience, this should be no surprise to you that this man Jesus raised from the dead because we were told about it a 1,000 years ago. So he quotes from Psalm 16. It's the Psalms, the book of Psalms, many of them written by King David, the greatest of Israel's kings in the Old Testament, the Psalms, the songbook of Israel. David King, about a 1,000 years before these events, he said, so a 1,000 years ago, David wrote Psalm 16. And what did David say in Psalm 16, verse 25? Well, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not... Abandon me to the realm of the dead. You'll not let your Holy One see decay. Well, David said that a thousand years ago. And Peter says, let me point out something obvious to you. David is dead. And in Jerusalem, you could then, you still can, go and see the tomb of David. And I don't suppose there's a lot left after a thousand years, but he did rot and he did decay. And the tomb is there. So Peter says, so who was David talking about when he said that the king wouldn't die or the king would not decay? Well, we're told, verse 29, I can tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But, but David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he had placed one of his descendants on his throne. So David, verse 31, seeing what was to come, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay and God has raised this Jesus to life. So Peter stands up and says, "Look, here's why you need to take our claims of the resurrection seriously. Because it had been predicted a thousand years earlier now, uh, imagine this. Uh, imagine uh, lying in the British Museum is something that's British. That's a rarity, uh, as opposed to the treasures of the rest of the world. But uh, there is, uh, uh, what I to put it, there, there is lying in the British Museum a scroll. And uh, amongst talk of this scroll from 1017, a 1, thousand years ago, written by Edward the Confessor, talking about whether, you know, much talk about whether William the Conqueror or whoever would be king next, et cetera. Uh, you, buried in the scroll is this little prediction. I've made it up, it's just not for real, all right. But here's the little prediction uh, that you find in the scroll of 1017. A woman shall come to rule the land. She shall be born of a priest in Eastbourne, educated in Oxford, and live in Maidenhead. She shall be known as chair of party, secretary of home, first minister. She shall rise to rule without victory, but will suffer disaster in her first campaign when her counsellors push her to fight. And for centuries people go, yeah, whatever. And then all of a sudden, someone goes, "Oh, it's quite a bit like Theresa May." (laughs) In fact, her dad was a vicar, and yeah, that's where she was born, and yeah, she went to Oxford Union. Well, hold on a minute, that's Theresa May, Uh, and it all fits. And at that point, you think, "Well, that's extraordinary." That is extraordinary, and you'd probably take the rest of the scroll a lot more seriously. What else did it say was gonna happen? Can I make some money here? Can I go down to Labrooks? and um, what other predictions? Is it say anything about the, uh, the Champions League? And the but you'd, you'd take the scroll a bit more seriously at that point. Well, it's just ex- what a level of detail. But do you realize that that's what you have in the Old Testament? Predictions of where Jesus would be born, born of a virgin, where he'd live, the titles he'd hold. They're all there. And alongside that, the promise that yes, he would die, but he'd rise again. Oh, a thousand years. So you've got all these historical events that in 2017, no historian will deny took place, the the life and death of Jesus Christ. Uh, And the predictions of them a thousand years earlier, highly accurate. Oh, well that's challenging. How do you explain that? He's the predicted Messiah, says Peter. You, Jewish audience of the first century, you should have known that. We may have, I guess, less awareness of these things, but do you know that? That's the level of detail you have of this prediction of Jesus Christ, that he would die, he'd rise, and be the Messiah, the saviour that all of us need. He's the predicted Messiah, but Peter goes on. Let me give you his other title. He's the exalted Lord. we pick it up at verse 32. Exalted Lord. Uh, God raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Uh, oh, tangent, we thought about that last time, if, if, if you weren't here. it's uh, another reason you've got to take the resurrection of Jesus seriously. So many witnesses to it. Not just in the dark. Not just, I saw Elvis in the supermarket aisle down at Sainsbury's. I'm sure it was him. I saw the back of his head. Uh, and he went... Sort of like that. I'm sure, it no multiple witnesses, hundreds on one occasion, witnesses. But verse 33. This is a slightly more technical argument he makes. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. I think Peter is answering this objection from his Jewish audience of the first century. Yes, we know that God promised he'd pour out his Holy Spirit, but God said he would do it. And you're saying Jesus has done it. That's not how the Old Testament puts it. And Peter essentially says, yeah, but Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. And he quotes Psalm 110 to make that point. Verse 34, David didn't descend to heaven, and he said, the Lord said to my Lord, so sort of God speaks to God. How does that work? Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it's always been predicted that God's Son would pour out God the Holy Spirit upon people to transform their lives, give them boldness to speak of him. And that's what Jesus is doing until verse 35-0. One day, all his enemies will be a footstool for his feet. But the conclusion of the speech is this, verse 36. Uh, Here's where Peter's been heading all along. Therefore, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord, God himself, come down to heaven. God come from heaven to earth, but now risen again to reign. He's the Lord and Messiah. The one who says you need to trust in me for the forgiveness of everything you've done wrong. And I'll take you to be with me and give you eternal life, Lord, Messiah. Now, the people rightly recognize verse 36 is, well, it's good news and bad news. It's bad news. Verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified this, you crucified God. You killed him, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ bad news. <laughs> but he's risen again, and he's giving you a chance. He's saying, I, I'm your Messiah, I can save you. For you and me, what do we make of that? Let me suggest, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah, well, I hope you realise that... There is an enormous amount of credible reasons to believe that. I mean, just here, a reference to witnesses, we haven't spent much time on it. But these predictions of a thousand years earlier, highly credible reasons you have to take this seriously. The claim that Jesus is Lord of the universe and you need him to save you, that isn't just interesting. You, you do have to make a decision on that. Well, let me put it in these terms. You, you, at some point at work this week or in some social function, uh, you meet a, a woman older than yourself, and uh, she says, hello, I'm the Princess of Liechtenstein. And you think to yourself, are you? Are you? You might be, you might not be. I don't really care. I don't take a huge amount of interest in Liechtenstein and its royal family. Uh, I'd probably struggle to find it on a map if I'm honest. Uh, that's all right. Uh, That's nice, dear. You might say to her and move on to the next thing. It doesn't really bother you. But second, second way, you meet this woman. She says, "I'm the princess of Lichtenstein." You think that's nice. She says, "Oh, and I'm your biological mother." Uh, Oh, let me explain how that works. Well, all of a sudden, that's a lot more interesting. That's personal. Or you take it a stage further, you meet this woman, she's the princess of Lichtenstein, you say, where's Lichtenstein, let me shine on the map, and I'm your biological mother, oh, and you've inherited from me a very rare blood disease that will kill you before the age of 40, unless you come and have some treatment. Oh, that is now very different, it's now personal and, well, there's an urgency to it as well. And you see, the the claims of Jesus Christ, they're not just, uh, I'm some figure of the past who's quite important. Uh, I I make number one on the internet, don't you know? Uh, Not that, that's quite interesting. I've inspired a few songs over the years, that's nice. But it's personal, because he says, I'm your creator, I'm God, who made you. Oh, and actually, you need me to save you as well. Because, all without exception, I do things wrong in life. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of wickedness in this world. But only things we need saving from, our sin, our selfishness, our self-absorption. Oh, and I'm the only one who can do that and take you to heaven for eternal life. Or you face, well, you face me as an enemy. And that's a different level, isn't it? that's a claim that forces itself upon you and says, you've got to engage with this. This is not a matter of indifference. It's personal. It's urgent. This Jesus is Lord in Christ. Finally, briefly, he makes a shocking offer to them. What do I mean by that? Let me read from verse 36 again. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Christ. When, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this news? Well, let, let me just point something out here. They were cut to the heart. Literally, they were stabbed is what, literally what the, what the verb means. They had some insider understanding into what they are done here. Now, just... To understand this rightly, two things that they didn't do at this point, that they didn't do. Number one, they didn't make excuses. No doubt some in verse 37 could have said, Well, that's terrible that those people over there crucified Jesus. But we weren't here seven weeks ago. I couldn't make it. Uh, So I'm here now, but I wasn't here seven weeks ago, so you're not talking to me. They don't make excuses. They're quite happy to or not happy, but they accept. What Peter says, twice he said in this passage, well, verse 23, you put him to death. Verse uh, 36 here, you crucified him. And the people recognised they may not have banged in the nails, but they had the same attitude. They were quite happy to listen to sermons from Jesus. They were interesting. They were quite happy to accept the odd free meal when he did a bit of magic. Uh, They would do that. They were quite happy to accept his healings. That's all nice. But to follow him... To say we need you to die in our place. Nah. Actually, life would be more convenient without you. They all recognize they shared that. So they don't object when Peter says you killed him. They don't complain at that. So that's the first thing they don't do. They don't complain. And secondly, I think it's striking, they don't say, oh no, we've broken the law. But we're told they're cut to the heart which is a real sense of conviction, isn't it? See, no one feels cut to the heart when they just break the law and they know they've done one or two things wrong. Do you know what? The other day, I, I shouldn't have done it. It was a 20-mile-an-hour zone, and I was doing 33. I was cut to the heart. I was cut to the heart because I was going at 33 in a 20-mile-an-hour zone. No one says that. They might go, probably shouldn't, but silly, silly limits, 20's plenty, who says so? It's a silly phrase. And um, you know, no one feels cut to the heart. You might feel a little bit, a little bit bad, but no one feels, or you go for some sort of interview and you exaggerate a little bit. You tell a little lie just to make yourself feel a bit better or, or make yourself come across a little bit better. And you afterwards, you think, wow, well, didn't quite tell the truth, but you don't feel cut to the heart. You don't feel that bad about it. Now you only feel that bad when you know you've done something wrong relationally, I think. So you tell a lie in an interview in a courtroom and someone goes to prison, you might feel cut to the heart. You drive at 33 in a 20 limit and knock down a child, you might be cut to the heart. You know that's significant. And the people here, they're not saying, wow, we've done some things wrong, haven't we? Wow, we've probably broken one or two of God's laws. They're saying, oh no, we realize what we've done here. This Jesus who is God, we said we don't want you. And now we realize that's not a small thing. It's not breaking one or two laws. But relationally, that's a catastrophic thing. They feel it so deeply. They're cut to the heart and so they ask, verse 37, what do we do? And here's the offer. And it's a shocking one, I think. Here's the offer. Peter replied, repent. That's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And here's what you get. The forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two things there. Now, why do I say it's shocking? Well, because I think the narrative in stories normally goes a little bit like this. You've killed him, but he's come back from the dead. And boys, now is he going to get you. The Revenant, good film, lot, won lots of Oscars, didn't it, for its cinematography, for its acting, uh, for its delivery of great speeches, um, but if you've seen it. But you know the film, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is mauled by a bear, and then uh, he'll survive, but the Tom Hardy character, well, wants to kill him, in fact, kills his son and, and, and leaves Leonardo to die. He's dead. Extraordinarily, with the help of some uh, Indian mystic and some medicine, he sort of comes back and stumbles back to life. And so, what does Leo want to do to Tom Hardy at the end? Oh, you got that one a bit wrong, didn't you? No, he wants to kill him. You try to kill me, I've come back from the dead, I'm going to smash you. And that's the normal narrative, isn't it? Or the Tarantino, I mean, it's just fairly normal. Kill Bill, two volumes. Uh, both of them. What's the doubt? If, you know, they kill the bride. She manages to come back from the dead, and she kills everyone. Revenge. Here, of course, is very different. You try to. You killed him. God raised him, and Jesus says, "I want to forgive you for all you've done." That is very different, isn't it? That is not how the story normally runs. Repent. That is turn around. Just instead of walking away from God, turn around and say, I need you. I recognize that this Jesus is Lord. I recognize that this Jesus is Messiah. And that only if I trust Him do I get forgiveness of all I've done wrong in life. And for some of us that's a huge amount, for some a smaller amount, but we all need it. Forgiveness of sins. And he says, second thing you receive. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38 You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No more of this uh, for those who are back next time. But God Himself will come and live in you and change you now. An external power comes to change you. Now, I have to say, this is slightly countercultural again because um, uh, the narrative of the 21st century is search for the hero inside yourself and you can do anything. I mean, it was quite a while ago that M people sang that as a song. But that's still the narrative. That's still the, and uh, so you have a generation of children growing up uh, struggling with that. Uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, a nursery school teacher, I remember her telling me, it was about eight years ago, that uh, on their curriculum, they had to sing to the children, to the tutor Frere Jacques, or all the children had to sing, rather, I am special, I am special, look at me. And uh, they were just. she said, I just struggle with the fact that we're telling all these children they can be anything they can, anything they desire to be. Uh, that ain't true. That ain't real life. None of us can be anything we want to be. But that's the narrative of the 21st century. You can be anything you want to be. You've just got to search for the hero inside of yourself. You go, girl. You can do anything. Uh, or boy. Um, <laughs> that's culturally the... W- but when we're honest... Changing ourselves is very hard. I watched an interview with Bono and The Edge the other day. You may like you 2 and their music, you may not. You may find their philosophy even more bizarre. I leave that to you. But um, they're talking about their new album, Songs of Experience, last album, Songs of Innocence, this one, Songs of Experience, and the bloke interviewing them said, so talk, talk me through the titles. Uh, and uh, they said, well, when you're young and innocent, you think, I'll never change the world, but I can change myself. And so that's what you focus on doing. I'll be a better person, and you can't do anything about the world. When you're experienced, it out rockers in your 50s. When you've got experience, it's different. You think, oh, I might be able to change the world a little bit. Changing myself, that's very hard. It is part of the promise of God that the one that you've killed but has risen again comes and says, I'll forgive you and I'll give you, I'll give you my spirit. Extraordinary power to change, a power from outside, not working up within yourself, a power from outside for a transformed life. It's a shocking offer, isn't it? Not vengeance, not justice per se, but forgiveness and God's Holy Spirit. It's a shocking offer. Now look, for you and me, we didn't crucify Jesus. But on our own, naturally, we want God out of our lives. Quite happy to take benefits of his world. But it's more convenient if we don't have to give an account to him. That's what we're like, naturally. We want him dead. But he says, I'm risen. And here's my offer for you. Forgiveness of sins my spirit to come and dwell within you. And your obligation is, you need to repent. Change. Stop living your own way and say, okay, I recognize that this Jesus is Lord. This Jesus is Messiah, the one I need to save me from the things I've done wrong for eternal life with him. very good reason to do so He's not asking for a leap in the dark. He's asking you to recognize this has been predicted centuries, a millennia in advance. Repent, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and God's spirit within. And there is a personal offer to this. You see that? There's an urgency to it. You can't be indifferent to this man, the most significant person who ever walked the planet. Repent. Repent be baptized, receive forgiveness of sins in God's spirit. Why would you not do that? Why would you not? It's a shocking offer, but it's very wonderful. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this Jesus. Thank you that you prepared the way for him for centuries and indeed millennia beforehand so that when he arrived, it was obvious, or should have been, that this is the one who was predicted in the Old Testament, the Messiah, come to save people from their sins, offer them eternal life. We praise you that this Jesus is the Lord. He's the one who reigns. This world is not out of control. And he offers us forgiveness of sins and his spirit to dwell with him for a transformed life. Father, would we recognize him rightly for who he is? For those of us who have been Christians for years, delight afresh in the, of who he is and what he offers us. If we've yet to come to terms with the urgency and the personal need of his offer to us, of who he is, would we do so? Again, we ask it for our good, for your glory. Amen.